I was asking Miriam what I should talk about today. And she said, why don't you talk about hope? All right. Then we can talk about hope. Um, Marion saw a truck. If you have your, your little inserts and take a look, that picture was actually taken by Marion as she was driving along the freeway. And she saw this truck, you know. And it's that straightforward and that simple. That's hope, right? And, and it gave her a sense just... Just kind of one of those little touches, soft shoulder taps um, from, from the Lord there to get something like that. And she said, you know, she really is thinking about, as we were just praying, about all these needs that we have and how we need hope to get through a lot of the health issues and a lot of the things that are going on. You know, poor Vernon, he, he couldn't get through to his wife before the set and he was so distracted. He was having trouble just playing the music and going through. And so he apologized and ran off. But of course, but all of these issues that, that weigh us down and dog us like that, how do we find the hope? Where's the hope? And I thought, okay, that was a great subject, a great topic. But you know, as soon as you filter it through my brain, it's going to come out a little bit different way because that's what I do. And so I'm hoping that I can fulfill this sense of hope in a way that transmits to you. Because I had a dream earlier this week that I cannot shake. And some of you I know read the blog piece that I did this week about it. But to me, the more I think about it, the more that it is giving me a sense of hope. And a sense of, I guess, the ability to be able to overcome the things that I'm dealing with. And so I want to start with that and, and, and then let's see if we can circle back around and I can show you how it's hopeful because it may not sound that way right at the outset. Anyway, so I, I can't remember if it was Monday morning or Tuesday morning and the alarm goes off and uh, immediately I hit snooze on the phone, right? So I know that I've lit a nine-minute fuse. I, I, can, I can be there for nine minutes. So I'm laying there, and I'm trying to gather myself together again. It was going to be a really busy day. There are all these threads that I had to pull back together again. There's all the tasks that had to happen. There's the pressures of this and that and the other thing. And so I'm, I'm laying there, literally just girding for the day. And the next thing I know, I'm having a conversation with a friend of mine, uh, my friend Lenny, uh, who, who died three years ago and took his own life. But just that quickly, I'm laying in bed and I'm trying to put myself together for the day. And then there's Lenny's face right in front of me. And we were in some kind of wooded area. There's a, a clearing, like a meadow. And I could see the ring of trees behind him. And beyond that, there were mountains. And it was the golden hour. It was that hour before sunset. So the light is all warm and orange and it's coming in at this deep angle. The shadows are long. The mountains are already in kind of a blue shade, but the trees are exploding with that red color of the light. But right in front of it, in full focus, was Lenny's face. And it was lit by this light. And all the texture of his skin and everything was so bright and so vibrant to me in that light. And he was talking to me. And for the life of me, I can't remember what he was saying. It was how he was saying it that was striking me that I couldn't take my eyes off of him. Because Lenny was always troubled to a certain extent. 
our relationship started with me as his pastor and then counselor and then friend. It kind of worked that way. So my conversations with Lenny were always sort of predicated on a question of his or an issue of his that we were working through. And so it was clearly kind of teacher-student sort of relationship. But as he was talking to me right then, he was talking with such gravity, such poise, such calm serenity that it was riveting to me. And even though I can't remember what he was saying, he was instilling in me a confidence. He was instilling in me a a, a sense of, of peace as I was trying to do what I was trying to do. And it was just such a role reversal and, and, as he was talking, I was just sitting there and, and just taking it all in. And then he took a breath, and I realized it was my turn to talk. And suddenly all this emotion came up that I don't even know where it came from. You know, I know I grieved Lenny's death, but maybe I didn't grieve it fully. Maybe I didn't process it all in even three years because all of this came up out of nowhere. And I could barely talk like I can barely talk right now. And the only thing that I could croak out you know, and my eyes were blurred at that point, was, I miss you so much, was all I could say. And he looked back at me, and it wasn't the response I was expecting, you know? He looked back at me, not with sadness, and certainly not with regret, not even with sympathy necessarily for what I was going through. It was just sort of this quiet knowing it was an understanding. He understood what I was saying. He recognized the feelings and the pain that I was going through. But he wasn't going there himself. He, he was just present. And it was striking in, in the way that, that he was just looking at me at that moment. And it looked like he was just about to speak, and the alarm went off again. And I got angry. It's like, it's like no, then that whale, no. And I'm trying to hold on to him, and but I knew that sucker is relentless until you get up and you hit the snooze again. And so this, you know, the grayness started from the edges, and it dissolved the mountains and dissolved the trees, and then there was just Lenny's face left, and it was draining of color. And I was trying to hold on just long enough. I wanted to hear what he had to say. He must be saying something good at this point, right? And then he was gone. <laughs> And that was the dream. Now, initially, that's not going to sound terribly hopeful to you, most likely. Um, when I posted it, I, I immediately got up. It was so real. It was just incredibly real. It took me a while, you know, once I got back up again, to reorient myself to the room and where I was. And I went right out and I started writing because I know dreams fade quickly and I didn't want to forget this. Um, and you know, it turned into a blog post, and I posted it. And someone uh, put a comment in, a woman who said that she's had these before too, but they're not really dreams. They're called visitations. And I've heard of this before sort of vaguely, but I looked it up just to see what the heck is going on with this stuff. And it's a thing. There really are what they call visitation dreams, and nobody knows what they are. There are obviously those who believe that it really is a spiritual encounter, with the, the loved one who has departed. And there are others that you know think it's, it's something that has a rational explanation. But the interesting thing to me was, just like near-death experiences, where they're not proven or anything, but they all have a similar set of circumstances and characteristics throughout for everyone who seems to have them, it's the same thing with these visitation dreams. And I, I got a, 
I found a, uh, an article in Psychology Today, and I just want to read you just this little paragraph about what they say are common to these visitation dreams because I checked off every single one of them. He, he said, the dreams have a kind of hyper-real intensity to them. Dreamers feel they have been touched or visited or communicated with and cannot easily shake the conviction that they have been communicated with. The deceased appear as they did in life rather than they did when they fell ill. In fact, the deceased often appear much younger or more healthy than when they died. The deceased conveyed a reassurance to the dreamer, I'm okay and I'm still with you. The message tended to be conveyed telepathically or mentally rather than via spoken word. The dream structure was not disorganized or bizarre. Instead, visitation dreams are typically clear, vivid, intense, and are experienced as real visits when the dreamer awakens. The dreamer is always changed by the experience. There is resolution of the grieving process and or a wider spiritual perspective. I just thought that was fascinating. You know, this is something that people are experiencing, and there's a, there's a, a sameness to it. You know, there's a, there's a pattern to it. Now, I'm not going there and, and trying to tell you that, that I was actually visited by Lenny. You know, I don't know how, how dreams actually work, but my suspicion is that they are material that is dredged up from our subconscious and not coming from an outside source. Although the Bible is full of dreams, that, that have, and visions that have information coming from God and God's Spirit and from outside sources. And so the dreamer is now knowing something that he or she couldn't have known before. I'm not saying that happened to me. But even if this was something that was dredged up out of my subconscious, to me that even makes it more fascinating. What did I know down there? What had I accrued down there that I wasn't maybe aware of that? maybe through God's prompting and God's preparation, I was now ready to face and take a look at in a different way. Either way, this dream, I haven't been able to shake. All week, it it keeps coming back to me, and I can still see Lenny's face there. And that sense of that that calm that I had when I was in his presence. I remember when I was just getting started with with, uh, my spiritual journey some 30 years ago, and life was so chaotic, and I was just such a nervous wreck. You know, such a crazy person. And I would get an appointment with my pastor. And he was like everybody's father figure. You know, we called him Papa Dick. And I'd go sit in his his office, which was uh, paneled all the way around with this really cheap, dark paneling, you know, that faux wood paneling. You know, but I remember just sitting in there. And for those 45 minutes that we sat and talked, everything was okay. It's like the wolves were at bay. Everything was all right. And... That's how I felt in Lenny's presence. Everything was all right. The wolves are at bay. And I keep coming back to that more and more and more. So what actually happened in this dream that I can start to pick apart what happened for me and then hopefully see how it translates to you? I think the first thing was, you know, I had hit the snooze. I was becoming aware of the needs I had, and I was starting to get anxious. I was starting to feel the pressure of the day building up before I even got out of bed. And then I fell back asleep again. And then Lenny starts counseling me, not in words, but in that manner that he had. And the whole centerpiece of this thing, the the main point, was his reaction to me when I told him that I missed him. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. If someone is in front of you and 
is actually sobbing and says, I miss you so much. What would be your response? I miss you too, right? They would, they would, maybe your eyes would fill with tears too. Maybe there would be the, the impulse to, to try to hug the person, um, to, to try to, to talk about something, to, to, to maybe thank them you know, for caring about you that much. There would be some sort of connection that I think we all can realize that we would do and we would probably expect if we were on the other side of that conversation. But Lenny did none of that. He did none of that. He didn't take any of my codependent bait, if you want to put it that way, right? I mean, I'm putting this stuff out there, and he's not going for it. He wasn't flattered. He didn't look flattered. He didn't even look pleased, necessarily. He didn't smile. It was just that knowing sort of glance. And at first I thought that he was completely just unconcerned with my pain. But as I think about it, that's not it. There was this understanding that he had. And now I'm thinking that he was unconcerned with the source of my pain. Not the pain itself. He recognized that. And if you think about it, what pain did he go through in the last few weeks of his life? The last few moments of his life? He knew the pain. He knew it much more intensely than I have felt it. But he seemed to be unconcerned with the source of it, I think. And that caused him to have that response that was so measured, right? Now, he didn't get a chance to reply. But there was a sense that I had that he was looking at me through a different kind of perspective, a wider perspective, a deeper perspective that had changed everything from his point of view. Think about that. Jesus in Matthew um, 22 I think he gives some voice to this changed perspective when he says that you all don't understand. He's talking to the Sadducees. You don't understand what's going on here. He said, in the resurrection, in the next life, nobody's going to be given in marriage. They're going to live as the angels live. And that's always been striking to me because that is talking about a reality that is so different than the reality that we occupy here as human beings. To not be given in marriage, to not have a significant other, to not have a best friend or a circle of friends, to not have anyone that you can tell your secrets to, to have literally no secrets. Jesus is talking about a reality that is so filled with unity and connection that we don't need to pair off in graduated ways to be able to find the kind of unity that we're looking for as human beings. Everything is going to be that unified. Everyone is going to be that connection. Everyone will be our best friend. Everyone will be our significant other. And that sounds so strange and alien. It doesn't even sound like something I really want to do, to be quite honest with you. I just can't imagine having my wife and having the circle of friends and, and having everybody at the same level. How do we do that? But in that place, obviously there is a release that we can't even imagine. But Jesus is pointing to it, just in this oblique, you know, kind of tangential way, because he really doesn't talk about the next life. But in this situation, we get this little glimpse, right? We've talked about the Mokan in here, that aboriginal tribe in, in Indonesia that doesn't have words in their language for when, for hello, for goodbye, 
for thank you, for even the word want. They don't have words in their language for that. What does that tell you if you don't have a word in your language? It means that they don't really have a concept of elapsed time. They don't see time as linear. They don't think in terms of when something happens. It's a constant now. If they don't have words in their language for hello and goodbye, then they don't look at the comings and goings of people in the same way that we do and spend a lot of mental effort thinking about those who are not present. They're focused on those who are present, always present. And in that sense, they don't miss people in the same way that we miss people because they're focused on this moment and this face in front of them rather than the one that's absent. If they don't have words for want or thank you, then they don't have a sense of personal property. It's such a different way of approaching life, which I think is mirroring what Jesus is talking about in the next life. We don't have these personal connections. We don't have this is mine and that's yours and I hold on to this and withhold that. It's all going to be like one organism with separate bodies, like these Mokan in their tribal life actually live out. It's so interesting to try to see if we can move it over into another kind of reality. You know, our John, I don't know where he went, where he disappears to. Maybe he's out in the next room, but John with the purple hair and all. Every time that I say, oh, here you are, buddy. Every time I say to him, how can I miss you? You're right there in front of me with your purple hair. Every time I say to him, I'll see you later. I'll see you on Sunday. What's your response, John? I see you every day. Always. Every time I do that. And, you know, I'll probably say I'll see you later at the end of today, and then you'll say it back to me. But for John, in, in a certain way, he's experiencing the connection even when the physical presence is not there. And this is his way of expressing it. And I don't know what that means to him, but it's really cool. And I think it has something to do with what we're talking about here, that there is a seamless connection that we're aware of Even as people are coming and going and moments are changing and circumstances are changing, there's a thread that runs through it, like the continuous prayer that Paul talks about. There's this continuous thread that we never let hold of. All of that information, all of that experience was already in me. It's been in me for years. And yet, Lenny's expression that I couldn't decipher and I've been thinking about ever since has started to make a stronger point, has started to pull these things out in a different way. He was saying, I think, with his expression and his reaction, that I know the feelings you're having. Those are the ones that took me out, right? But now I'm seeing a connection that is so great, so immersive, so all, that those kind of fears don't take hold anymore. I recognize them in you. you know. I see them in you. But there's something that is deeper than that. And if you can get a hold of that, then everything is going to start changing in your life as well. There's a story of the Desert Fathers that... Uh, I, I just love the Desert Fathers anyway. But this one, and it's in your uh, insert if you want to follow along. But the story is told that one of the elders, one of the older monks, lay dying in Skidi, which was one of their monasteries in North Africa. And the brethren, the younger monks, surrounded his bed, dressed him in the shroud, and began to weep. But he opened his eyes and he laughed. And he laughed another time. And then he laughed a third time. And when the brethren saw this, they asked him, saying, Tell us, Father, why are you laughing while we weep? And he said to them, 
I laughed the first time because you fear death. I laughed the second time because you're not ready for death. And the third time I laughed because from the labors I go to my rest. And as soon as he had said this, he closed his eyes in death. It's one of those stories that we look at and we don't really comprehend. It seems so callous for him to be laughing in the face of their grief. But yet he's already part of a connection that is so deep and so real. He doesn't fear death in the first place because he knows that death is just a transition and the connection will continue. He recognizes their pain, but he doesn't give the source of their pain the validation that they're probably looking for. Don't we want all of our pain to be validated? Don't we want people to notice it, recognize it, you know, feel sorry for us a little bit? Doesn't that feel good when that is happening? None of this is given that kind of vent from these men's and women's point of view when they have crossed into a different perspective, a kind of connection. And what is that perspective? What's the difference? How can we view life ourselves with more hope and less fear? Well, Genesis, I think, gives us a clue. We're all over the place this morning, aren't we? In Genesis, God is described as the kana of heaven and earth. The kana, that's the Hebrew word of heaven and earth. And I looked at the NASB translation, and it's unfortunately translated the possessor, the possessor of heaven and earth, which is a valid translation. But kana, the word kana, is a child root of the root ken. And we would spell it Q-E-N, all right? Kufnun in, in, in Hebrew. And it literally means nest, a bird's nest, right? And then kana, when you add the ash, the, the het on the end of it, that refers to the construction of the nest or the builder of the nest. And when you take those words and you look at the relationship and the imagery and the ideas from which they come, it makes so much more sense. The Hebrews understood God as the builder of heaven and earth, not the creator. Because when we think of creator, we think of it in an abstract way. Snap fingers, everything just comes into being. But to the Jews, he built the heavens and earth the way the eagle builds the nest, running around grabbing materials and and gathering them together and carefully putting them in place and creating this structure that is firm, and it's, it's rooted where it needs to be rooted, high up in the cliff face, and then covering it with feathers and other soft material and making this perfect enclosure, this perfect environment for the nestlings. Right? They will have this perfect environment in which to grow, in which to get to the place that they can take off on their own and fulfill their purpose as eagles themselves. This is the way the Jews looked at the earth, God was the builder in the same way. He has created this whole universe, the heavens and the earth, as this perfect environment for us in which we can grow and mature and be nurtured so that we can fulfill our purpose as human beings. I remember when I first encountered this, I was thinking, you know, it's sort of like the world, our lives, are one of those padded playpens that you put babies into. You guys have one of those yet? Okay. And you, and you know, it's got the padding everywhere. It's got the soft netting. And the netting is just right, so you can't get into it, and you can't get stuck, and you can't get choked. I mean, everything in that playpen is designed for the safety of the infant. 
That infant literally cannot get hurt in there because they can bounce and they can do this and they can throw themselves against it and they're not going to get hurt. And it's almost as if this is what God has done in the world. Created an environment in which what is essentially us, who we really are, cannot get hurt. And you're probably thinking, well, that's absolutely ridiculous. Just look at the headlines, will ya? Come on, look at what's going on in this world. People are dying every day. People are being tortured. There's terrorism. There's all these horrible things going on. Children are being abducted. How in the world can you say that God has created some sort of ideal environment for us in which to grow? That's a difficult question to answer. But what I would say is is that, yes, our bodies are subject to all sorts of frailties. Our bodies are subject to pain. But what is intensely us, who we are at core, who we are in Christ, who we are in God, that can't be touched. What survives this life can't be touched. And this life, with its pleasure and pain and equal measures of suffering and, 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 and pleasure, is just the right mix somehow that allows us to grow and find our place and become the mature people that we were designed to be. We don't grow without pain. We've talked about that. We all know that at a certain extent. Obviously, we'd like to do without some of the immense trauma that, that we go through. But this view here that the, that the Jews had is very instructive because they look at life this way. God has created a space for us, a space for us to be able to become who we need to be. And I'm wondering if Lenny's reaction, whether it came from inside myself as, as a dredging up of my subconscious, was trying to point that out. You have forgotten this along the way. You have given in to the waking dream that all of these things that beset you right now, these things that are creating the anxiety in you right now, the things that are taking away your sense of hope or optimism for the future right now, are the things that really don't matter in the long run. Whatever circumstances that we find ourselves in, we can go where we need to go as people. In fact, maybe we can go there better when they are more adverse. We take the larger leaps when they are more adverse. But nothing says that God's environment for us is still not the ideal one that we need to be in, that still isn't completely safe. You know, obviously, I want my pain validated. (laughs) But the real comfort that I'm seeking is coming from this other perspective where pain is overshadowed, not validated and lifted up and given more weight in my life, but overshadowed and dispersed with this overwhelming sense of connection and shelter. Christian martyrs, have you ever read any of the lives of the saints and and the lives of martyrs? It is incredible in the face of the torture that some of them went through, in the face of impending death, the attitude that they had, the perspective that they had, what they were able to say that was still so hopeful and optimistic and absolutely rock certain and assured that everything was going to be okay. 
everything was going to be well. In those kind of circumstances, how do you do that? With some sort of glimpse of this underlying connection that undergirds everything, has to be. What did they see? Well, I'm thinking they saw the nature of the nest. I'm thinking somehow they saw the environment that God has created for us and saw how good it is. Now, Jesus uses a different image. He uses the image of the sheepfold. And ancient sheepfolds that we've talked about in here before were rude constructions that the shepherd would just, you know, just basically throw up some rocks on three sides, usually against a, a, a hillside or a cliff face or something, and then leave an opening, not even putting a door. And they would drive the sheep into the enclosure, and sheep not being the brightest bulbs on the tree, you know, they won't even jump over a fence. They won't think to do that. So they'll just stay where they're put. And then all the shepherd had to do was sleep in the openings, literally becoming the door of the sheepfold himself, and they wouldn't step over him either. And so in that safe environment, nothing is going to harm the sheep. And Jesus at John 10, look what he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. See, that doesn't make any sense to us unless we understand these, how these ancient sheepfolds were constructed. I am the door of the sheep, and all who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, I know that reading this probably doesn't sound real safe to you because there's a lot of imagery of getting got, right, and scattered. But what Jesus is saying is the safety is with the good shepherd. The safety is within my sheepfold. No wolves, no thieves can touch you, can touch us in the nest, in the sheepfold. And even if we get hurt, even if we get lost, what does a good shepherd do? Leaves 99 for the sake of the one who is lost and will not rest until that one is found and brought back with joy and celebration. These are images of real connection, images of safety. And David uses the same image, doesn't he? And certainly probably the the most famous psalm, but maybe one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. And it's got to be read in the King James. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. They rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amazing. But still, 
he finds himself in the presence of his enemies, right? But it's no cause for fear, no cause for alarm. In the nest, in the fold, he's safe. All is well. What is hope? What is this hope that we're looking for? Normally, we think of it as an expectation or a belief in a good outcome, an outcome that we want, but something that is still not yet realized. That's the sense of hope, isn't it? It's not yet realized, but we hope that it will be realized. What I think Lenny is doing was reminding me that I already had in myself a much more radical understanding of hope. But maybe I wasn't ready to really let it play out in my life. And that is that I am already in the nest. I'm in the sheepfold. I'm in the playpen. Nothing can hurt what I really am. Nothing can harm my real purpose in God. Now, of course, yes, I can be hurt emotionally, physically. I can be frightened. I can be stressed. But more and more, I want to start reacting to my own pain the way Lenny did in reacting to mine. Calmly understanding, but not reacting, not validating, not building it up, but pointing to the source of all connection in a different way. Seeing pain as part of a bigger whole. And now what came to mind as I was thinking about this is Julian of Norwich. She said, sin is behovely, which is an archaic word that means sin is still useful. Sin is necessary, right? It's necessary for us to grow. It's necessary for us to learn. It's necessary for us to retain our sense of vulnerability, our sense of humility, our sense of dependence. The things that we do wrong, the pain that we feel, the consequences that we absorb are reminding us of the relationship that we have with our God as dependent children. But in the midst of all of that, all is well. All continues to be well. All will always be well. And I think that's the message. If we can get to that place where our pain does not overwhelm us. We recognize it, but we see it in this larger perspective. And we always see the thread of connection running through everything and never leaving or forsaking. Then the hope becomes something that's grounded in the now, right here. We're not waiting for it to be realized, and that changes everything. I'm not there. But thank God for Lenny, who gave me a little bit of a piece that I can grab onto and keep working toward. I thank God for him in my life and in all our lives. Let's pray. Father, you are our hope. You are everything that is good, and every good thing comes from you. And you infuse everything that is. You will never leave us or forsake us. All of these things in the face of our pain get lost at times. Help us to bring them back. Help us to practice 
coming back to this realization that we are in the right place at the right time if we are present to whomever we're with and whatever we are doing. Help us with the presence. Help us with that connection, seeing the relationships that define the goodness of where we are. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for everything that you give us, every tool, every person, every dream, everything that we can see is that connection from you in whatever way you choose to give it. Never let us forget, Father, we can only do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Let's all stand.